This is Steve Downs, the voice of Master Chief Sierra 117, with a shout out to the Xbox Expansion Pass. Keep your heads up during this time of isolation. Stay positive. Play some games. Most importantly, finish the fight. Thanks for listening to XEP. Master Chief, out. Welcome one, welcome all to episode 144 of the Xbox Expansion Pass recorded on Sunday, August 21st, 2022. I am your host, Luke Lore, the Insipid Ghost. In this episode, we are grateful to be joined by Seamus Blackley, physicist, mathematician, designer, and father of the original Xbox. This interview has been a long time coming, and as always, I hope you enjoy. Yet another week of gaming is upon us and behind us. Welcome to XEP, discussing all things in the Gamerverse as they pertain to the Xbox ecosystem. And as I want to do each and every week, I like to start the show by offering words of kindness to those who have made my gaming week better. And this week, I extend words of kindness to two different amazing people. The first, of course, going to Mr. Josh J. Josh, I hope you're doing well and that all things are good. Your mom told me you listened to the episode, so of course I had to reach out and say, what's up? I hope you're doing well. Your mama loves you. And uh, yeah, man, proud of you. You're a great, great person, great person. The second words of kindness go to Mr. Jared G. Jared reached out to me via DMs to let me know that some of the artwork wasn't uploading to certain podcast services. I think I have fixed it, but it was loading in purple and in weird dimensions to some platforms. I reached out to Apple uh, and hopefully was able to address a bit of that. So if, if any of you were ever experiencing that, you know, let me know and we'll see if we can't get it fixed. But it looks like it's better on my end and I'm, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens there. Oh, man. If you are enjoying XCP, or if this is your first time on XCP, please consider dropping a review over on iTunes or Spotify. That is the lifeblood of small shows like this, and it's what allows me to sometimes punch above my weight and get bring you great guests like Ed Freeze, Lauren Lanning, Crystal Dynamics' is Brian Wagner, and so many others. Of course, this episode, we have Seamus Blackley. This has been in the works for over a year. I am so excited for you all to hear what Seamus has to say upon his reflections a little after 20 years now of what Xbox Legacy is. Really fascinating interview. I will let you know, because many of you have let me know, that you often listen listen to this show with uh, kids in the car or around your children. Um, we swear a lot in this one. I should say it's just more of an explicit episode as he reflects on uh, different elements of his past. So if you are one that typically listens around your family, please know that we have uh, some pretty explicit language in this one. And uh, that's a bit atypical for XCP. That's not standard. Uh, but, you know, as, as a nice, comfortable heads up, that way you don't get into an awkward moment having to explain what this or that means. Though, if you do, please write into the show and let me know, because I would love a hilarious story about that. I always find that funny. 
Guys, I'm not going to spend too much on the news this week. I know that you want to hear from Seamus, and that's probably your big get. Uh, But I do want to reflect on a couple things that did happen this past week. Perhaps the biggest, Embracer Group announced a number of acquisitions, and it doesn't look like it's done yet. Embracer Group has been gobbling up a number of things, most notably in the previous years, THQ Nordic. That was a big one for me, at least one that was on my radar. But they announced this past week a slew of new ones. And in 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 truth, you're better off going to a more dedicated source for this one because it can get a bit complex. But included in a number of their acquisitions, they're working to acquire the Middle Earth Enterprises, which includes Lord of the Rings and Hobbit IP. That is wild. I don't know how that interacts with Amazon's Rings of Power. Uh, but it's pretty wild to think that Embracer Group is working to acquire something as, you know, mega as as just what middle earth could be they're working with the tolkien residents to to establish that that's pretty wild they're also acquiring tripwire interactive they're makers of games like maneater and killing floor two very fun games that i totally recommend uh maneater is a really fun game where you're you know swimming around as a shark causing mayhem which is a blast killing floor is a wonderful i i think it's fantastic uh first person shooter in the vein of Le- of left for dead but a bit more horror-esque I have played that game many times, both on Xbox and on PlayStation. I love it. Uh, Embracer Group is also gobbling up Singtrix, Tuxedo Labs, another undisclosed studio uh, for PC and console games that has yet to be revealed, and that's due to an IP that that studio is working with. So they're keeping that one under wraps. And then the one that also kind of broke radars was limited run games mind you we had the founders of limited run games on xep they were the ones that broke on xep that they would be doing uh xbox games which is kind of cool right like they came on our show and dropped news that they would be uh creating physical copies of xbox games for the first time ever that was broken on this show which is really pretty cool uh now we're seeing embracer group is acquiring them that's wild to think about um it's a lot of of it's, it's just a lot when you think about what it is that Embracer is doing. And I have to wonder, amidst all the conversations of Sony and Microsoft and Monopolies, uh, when people will turn their eyes to Embracer and Tencent and Amazon and Apple to see just how they're running their businesses. I don't necessarily think that they're Monopolies, but certainly the number of acquisitions and the number of... Uh, franchises under a one umbrella raises eyebrows because it eclipses anything that xbox or sony is doing uh, on their playstation side pretty wild pretty cool but i encourage you to check out a more dedicated source to that news store because simply put it was above my wheelhouse in terms of uh, the monies that were involved and the legalities that come with it Dead Island 2 popped up for pre-order. This one's pretty cool. This is not the original Dead Island 2 listing. This is a new one, and it was popping up on Amazon and a few other sites. Looks like it was dated for February 3rd, 2023, with new artwork as well. This lends credence to the idea that Dead Island 2 is not going away, and that actually excites me. I really enjoyed the Dead Island franchise. I played Dead Island and Dead Island Riptide when they came to Game Pass and really enjoyed both of them. I didn't play them when they first came out because they didn't speak to me at the time. But uh, after enjoying the Dead Island games and really enjoying Dying Light, I feel like that genre of first-person zombie melee uh, is kind of fun, and I, I'm, I'm in for that. I like the games where you don't have to think a lot. You can just enjoy being overpowered and mow down some zombies. I'm in for Dead Island 2 if indeed it is real. Again, the new artwork, the new date, and the fact that it's a new listing all lend credence to that. Um, 
Plus, it's called Dead Island 2 Day 1 Edition. So that's kind of cool. Uh, I'm interested in this for sure. I'd be ecstatic to see it come back. Uh, but we'll see. We'll see just what happens there. Like I said, guys, not a lot of news this week. I have a lot of your questions that you wrote in. I'm going to keep them archived uh, until next week. My schedule is just not allowing me to move around as I go back to work. So many of you that wrote in, I've got your questions held out for next week. I've also got impressions to the Turtle Beach React R controller, the wired controller with back buttons. Uh, Spoiler alert, I absolutely love this controller. It punches well above its weight at $40. I dig it. I'll talk more about that in the next episode. Uh, But in truth, I want the majority of this episode to be dedicated to Seamus Blackley. This is an interview that I've worked on for over a year to bring Seamus on, find a time in his schedule as he's so busy. And I hope you all enjoy it greatly. That's going to be it from me. Enjoy the interview. If you get a chance to rate the show or reach out to Seamus and let him know you heard it, that would mean the world. Have a wonderful rest of your gaming week, guys. Take care. I'm honored now to welcome to the show physicist, mathematician, and the man best known in this community as the father of Xbox, Seamus Blackley. Seamus, how are you? I'm all right, man. How are you doing? I'm ecstatic to have you on. This has been a long time coming. Of course, uh, <laughs> I think those... <laughs> That's a nice way of saying that it took me forever to get my shit together to actually be on this. So thank you. Uh, well, as I said, though, prior to recording, when you're gaming royalty, you're afforded a few leisures. Uh, and I'm, I'm grateful that you accepted the invitation that I get a chance to speak to you because you've had such a tremendous and profound impact on so many people in the communities that I frequent. Uh, but Seamus, you know, you're considered the father of Xbox and we're roughly at this point, roughly a year removed from the 20th anniversary of the console that you helped create. Does that feel surreal or have you gotten numb to that impact? Um, well, I think over time you get numb to it. Um, Things happen, like people say that you're royalty, um, which is actually pretty kind. I mean, it's great. Thank you. Um, nobody ever feels like the, they deserve something like that. But it's a lot better than being called legendary, which wow. actually just means old. So that's good, right? Legendary means Gandalf-like, which means old. And probably fall down a crevasse and be killed by some giant fucking thing. But I digress. Uh, it does feel weird. Um, it, it, at first, um, when I would find myself in situations in different parts of the world and see everybody know what Xbox was, Mm -hmm. that was extremely bizarre. Mm -hmm. Um, the, and it's not all positive, you know, there was a, a news story that I saw early on about, a kid who had shot another kid to steal his Xbox. And you're like, is that on me? You know what? How do I feel about that? So Mm -hmm. it's, um, it's a lot. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a bizarre thing. Yeah, certainly. I mean, you had to have been at one point, despite being extremely intelligent and capable in your field and, and whatnot, you were sort of thrust into a limelight that, people were adjusting to because the internet was only after Xbox came out. That was when it was truly starting to percolate and your name started to, to circulate along with your picture and such. You had to adapt with that, right? Well, but before that I was notorious. So I had, you know, I had some exposure to this. 
I had this huge mm-hmm. failed Jurassic Park game called Trespasser. I remember before yeah. Xbox, and that really happened right at the dawn of internet fandom and internet game journalism, and um, and <laughs> that was fairly unfun, I'll tell you. So mm-hmm. um, I had some idea what the negative side was about, and so part of what I think enabled Xbox to happen was that I was fairly fearless because I'd had that experience in getting out in front of the community and saying, mm-hmm. we're going to do this thing because I knew that I had already had like basically the worst that they had to give. So mm-hmm. fuck it, let's go. Um, right. And it was a way of, you know, kind of using press to get Microsoft to do stuff because if I could go out and say we were doing something, even if it was only sort of marginally authorized to say that, Mm-hmm. then that started to bring reality to it, right? Mm-hmm. Say its name. And that was part of part of how we did it, you know, with Kevin uh, Backus, who, who was a big fan of that. Kevin often wanted to say much more than was authorized. God bless him. But, uh, <laughs> you know, we pulled it off. Well, prior to Trespasser and the limitations that come with that, You'd had success with Looking Glass Studios and then in creating a physics system for Flight Unlimited. You'd seen the ups and downs of an industry as a as a younger mindset version of yourself. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And more importantly, like, you know, at Looking Glass, we were, you know, along with uh, with John, with John Carmack. Um, you know, we were really right out in front on 3D rendering. And what that meant, because mm-hmm. that was at a time when, you know, it was really hard to do 3D rendering. There were no books. There was no GitHub. You couldn't, you had to figure it out yourself. Mm-hmm. And nobody had really done it. We were doing texture mappers. Uh, I was writing physics systems to go in these 3D systems because suddenly we needed physics because the way that objects interacted with one another in these environments was so much more complicated than in 2D. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and we figured it out. And so I knew a few things. I knew what it was like to make games. I knew what it was like to do something really innovative and how terrifying that is Mm -hmm. and how the audience can be incredibly enthusiastic and also incredibly, incredibly enthusiastic and also incredibly punishing of you if you don't get it right. Mm -hmm. So I knew all this stuff and I'd experienced it and it was really helpful. Do you think those, the the lessons that you learned from that allowed you to kind of exist in this world next to Jay Allard and Ed Freeze and and Bill Gates and such, and sit in those rooms for those types of discussions and, and the, the gauntlets that you had to run with them? Well, that was new. That, that was new. I mean, I'd never, I had been around politics uh, in physics, which is different. Um, and there's a lot of politics in physics. Um, I would say that the politics is never work worse than when the stakes are low. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I mean by that is that when only prestige is involved, people are really vicious. Um, in situations where everybody's making money, it's a lot, kind of less so. Um, but, you know, at Microsoft, the thing to keep in mind is I was this brand new guy. And so I didn't have these careers and sets of relationships at Microsoft that stretched back, you know, a decade in some cases with some of the guys you mentioned mm-hmm. uh, and track records. I just sort of showed up and I had met Bill Gates at DreamWorks because he had been really impressed by a Trespasser demo, mm-hmm. uh, believe it or not where I had dinosaurs running around and I was throwing boxes at dinosaurs and the sound system and everything was all running on physics. And he thought that was pretty nifty. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he said, Hey, you should work at Microsoft. And so when trespasser went South, I was like, 
bbillgee at microsoft.com. Dear sir, you had said I should work at Microsoft, et cetera, right? And that's how I got there. <laughs> Is and, that really how it worked? Was it that simple? I say simple, um, but you know what I mean. It was something like that. I mean, I did send that email. And wow. uh, and I don't know if it was through him or through some other way that I got interviewed. I, and I literally can't remember. But I remember my, my interview at Microsoft. You know, I, I was interviewed by you know, Colonel Architects and Mike Abrash. And I mean, I was, I was subjected to a motherfucker programming test. Um, mm -hmm. So, uh, and, and, and it was, <laughs> I was, I thought my career was over. You know, the aftermath of Trespasser was really bad. I was genuinely suicidal, like honestly, like, mm -hmm. like, like, like suicide hotline suicidal. Um, mm -hmm. And somehow I made it through, got in. And then I was this new guy and, um, and I had this idea and I was really forceful about it. And there was an effect with all those guys, many of whom you mentioned, where they would fight you and try to stop you from doing something because it was in competition with some project they wanted to do. Mm -hmm. And then when they saw that it might succeed, suddenly they wanted to join you. And then suddenly they wanted to say it was their idea. And so I learned a lot about politics in that environment. And are you alluding to the the other team within Xbox or Microsoft at the time that were, were working to create a game console and you guys were the ones that brought the prototype to the meeting with Bill Gates? Is that is that what you're alluding to? No, I'm just I'm I'm alluding to, you know, basically any executives at a big company who are mm -hmm. faced with somebody trying to do something new, right? Because mm -hmm. um, when you're in a big company, and I don't know if you work at a big company, but the most important thing is your social rank inside that company. And the, not even necessarily like the success of the company or the product you're working on takes a second seat to where you are in the hierarchy in those situations. Mm -hmm. Right. And I hadn't been really that familiar with that. And so I had to get used to that quickly to make things work. And I had to get used to like subjugating my ego in terms of what my title was or who I reported to or whatever in exchange for getting the project done. And so, mm -hmm. You know, my experience at Xbox was really an experience of bouncing around. I had I had like 30 different titles, you know, or maybe not that many, but maybe eight. And mm -hmm. what happened was every time there was a problem anywhere, you know, like, like, so, so we'd go get it approved. And then I made a bunch of demos in the silver boxes, which we made by hand mm -hmm. and took them around. It did press and did the thing I talked about with Kevin of getting it in front of people, talking to game developers. Mm -hmm. And then these older Microsoft hands would sort of show up with all their political connections and say, well, I'm going to be in charge of software. And there's not, not a lot I could do about it because I didn't know their managers or anything. And I only knew Bill. And I eventually accrued some support. Uh, Rick Rashid at Microsoft Research, other people who were senior who understood what I was trying to do. But I just mm -hmm. took it upon myself to forget about the politics and just get done what we needed to get done. And what ended up happening was that wherever there was anything important, I ended up being there because I was the guy who actually knew how to make it all go. And I realized that that was the most important skill. And once I figured that out, suddenly I was in charge. Does that make sense? It does make um, sense. And you so you so that go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm going to cut you off. But the other team, these these the 3DO guys, the Web TV guys, they weren't making a game console. They were making a game console when they heard we had a proposal for a game console. Then suddenly they were making a game console. You catch my drift. Gotcha. And their entire strategy for making the game console was kind of like will remind you of one of our political parties today which was their plan was whatever the opposite was of what we had last presented gotcha um and it was super frustrating 
um, but you know, easily enough defeated um, once we figured out what the ground rules were because we had a plan that was modern and took into account modern trends in gaming and rendering. And we had the right partners and we knew all the developers and they were designing uh, they were designing a system to assuage the sort of bruised ego they had from 3DO2 being canceled and having to work on web TV. Um, and so it ended up being no contest. Did you develop a relationship with them after the fact, like later on, or did they just kind of fade into other realms of, of development? They faded into other realms. Some of the stuff they did was really shitty, um, like mm -hmm. super shitty. Um, and so I don't think there's ever going to be a friendship there. I mean, the, the, gotcha. You know, looking back on it, the stuff that they said and the, the conniving kind of crap they tried to pull was uncool. Mm -hmm. gotcha. um, you know, well, and there were, there, there were a couple of managers involved who were like bad guys. The engineers are always cool. Like, you know, engineers are great because getting nature to do something is so goddamn hard that it obliterates your ego and you just become interested in the problem. And so almost every real engineer you meet is super cool. Mm -hmm. In... In multiple interviews that I've listened to in preparation for this one, and then even in this one, you've used the term ego subjugation. And I, I have to think that that's got to be something that you continuously look back on because for a long time and in many of the rooms you've been in, you were the smartest guy in the room. And then in other meetings, that didn't matter for anything, it sounds like. And you had to learn to navigate political spaces and, and figure out how to, to manage things. You've also ended up being representing multiple people, which we'll talk about in a bit. Um, I just wonder if you could elaborate a little bit on how you came to the conclusion that your ego was something that you needed to adjust and keep in mind and how you have taken that lesson through your career. So look, I mean, I was, um, I was a pretty, I was actually a, a very, very severely abused kid. And mm -hmm. that makes you really insecure about everything and your own value. Because uh, your parents showed you that your value was zero. Um, and it's really hard to get over. Mm -hmm. And then um, I, you know, was totally lost until I found physics in college. And in fact, I had to lie about, uh, about something. I can't remember what I did, but to the, to the university in order to get permission to take enough classes to make up for the two years that I had no credits. So I graduated with this physics degree, like summa cum laude, like big deal in two years, um, mm -hmm. taking all the classes together because I just sort of found my home, right? Mm -hmm. and, and I was good at it. And it was a thing I was good at. And I became horrible. Like when I was in graduate school, my nickname was the swine because I would walk out of exams early. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I was generally like <laughs> no fun to be around. Because I picked up on stuff really fast and I had no patience for anybody. And I realized at some point that I was just an asshole. And then I, you know, um, the Super Collider was canceled and that was tough for everybody. And I took a job designing airplanes. And while that company was getting started and it actually never started because um, I was flying a bunch then and really wanted to design airplanes, I took what I thought was a temporary gig making games. Mm -hmm. And I met all these MIT guys at Looking Glass and they were really smart and they were doing 3D rendering, which is what I wanted to do. And it was really hard. And so I got humbled by this task and humbled by interacting with Doug Church and John Mayara and, you know, other guys who are now sort of, you know, legendary in games and Carmack, mm -hmm. you know, like John and, um, uh, and, and also, you know, wonderful guys. Um, and 
uh, I slowly just started to realize that I was a tool and I needed to fucking cut it out. And, you know, I came across this quote from President Garfield, believe it or not. Okay. Uh, and it's been attributed to many people, but I, I've seen it most kind of uh, maybe credibly attributed to him. And it's, it basically says, it's incredible. It's amazing what you can accomplish if you don't care who gets credit. And it really struck home with me. And, you know, really um, on Trespasser, I was still guilty of having my ego associated too much with something. And on Xbox was Xbox was after the experience with Trespasser when I was forced to experiment with letting go. And it really helped. And then incredibly after Xbox, you know, I, I left Xbox because I realized that the thing I really wanted to do was make cooler games possible. And Xbox taught me that it was really about money. Whereas before I had honestly thought it was about technology, it was about tools and it is, but really at the base of it all, it's about money and it's about getting risky new ideas funded mm -hmm. uh, and letting brilliant people experiment with new ideas. That's where you get new genres of awesome games from. If you allow money people to run things, they will continuously invest in the last thing that made money and there will be no new titles and the industry will shrink to nothing because people want to buy something new. However, if you ask gamers what they want to buy, they will tell you basically the last thing they liked because what the hell are they going to say? They're not game designers. They're going to tell you what they liked. And mm -hmm. so a lot of financial, you know, finance guys, and this is less true now than it was in like 2002, would just keep funding those things if they were given the opportunity. So anyway, I took it upon myself to go and try to figure that out and bring some structured finance to the games industry. And that was the ultimate sort of let go of your ego because I vanished from the public eye and all I did was support my friends and other game designers and get them money. And I went and learned all sorts of shit about structured finance, big banks, big insurance, um, you know, financial uh, uh, regulation, regulatory codes, you know, FIN 46, multi-purpose entities, all this kind of shit mm -hmm. in the service of that. So I think that really that's the journey that I've been on. And, uh, and I think that, <laughs> I mean, like you probably know people who you wish would go on that journey. Um, but that's, it was good. It was helpful. And I think I'm a much better person for it. I, I don't think my wife would have liked me in the 1990s. I can uh, empathize with that because I often look back to who I was at a certain point in certain stages of my life. And I'm grateful for the experiences that got me where I am, but I don't like the person I was at one point. Yeah. And let um, me, let me take a moment to apologize to everyone who knew me in the nineties. I'm very sorry. <laughs> well, if you'll forgive the personal questions in this realm, Sometimes it can be very lonely at the top of the mountain. If you were the swine who could leave exams early while taking double and triple the class load to graduate early, you might have, and I'm projecting perhaps, but were you lonely? And it wasn't until you met these MIT guys making games and airplanes and whatnot that you were not, and that allowed you to change? Um, Is that too much of a leap? No, no, no. I mean, it's, I was very profoundly broken. Not mm -hmm. that I'm well now, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm well enough to talk about it now, you know, and, uh, I see. 
Um, so it's not clear to me that I was really having a lot of relationships. I mean, that sounds really fucking bizarre, but that's the truth. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I treated a lot of people really badly and mm -hmm. uh, had a lot of bad relationships, um, that were my fault. And I thought at the time that, you know, as one does that everybody else is fucked up because mm -hmm. that's what everyone thinks, but really looking to yourself is pretty good exercise a lot of the time. Yeah. Uh, so I don't know if it's lonely so much as just not even knowing how to engage. I mean, w one of the things that is true for abused kids is that your entire life is focused on survival at home, just mm -hmm. survival. And you're in this weird alternate reality from other kids where you're excited to go to school because you get away from it mm -hmm. and you're dreading going home. Um, and I went actually to this school called Albuquerque Academy, which was like super academically tough. And so it wasn't particularly safe either. Uh, it was kind of like an English boys school in, you know, to begin with, mm -hmm. uh, and there's a lot of hazing and shit. And so I was in this crazy place where I guess you could think of it as being lonely, but I was really just kind of like in a survival mode. Mm-hmm. You know, and I find myself as a result of this, like having a terrific amount of empathy for people who, who are in that mode through no fault of their own, you know, because you get tossed into it and you get these survival skills and the survival skills sometimes are damaging to you. Like when you when you're accustomed to just surviving in it, you, and when you're out of that environment, those survival skills don't do you any favors. God, right. this is weird for a games podcast. What the hell are we even talking about? Well, I appreciate you sharing it. We'll go back to the games momentarily, and I do, but I do want to thank you for it. Um, I don't think you know my my day job is is middle. I'm a middle school teacher. I've been teaching middle school for over ten years at this point, and um, I see a lot of what you've described. And so I appreciate you sharing because this allows me to to remind others and other educators and and students in some cases that it can get better. Reflection, and sometimes people are just surviving, and they're not bad people, bad kids, and such. It's true. And look, you know, I'll tell you from personal experience that, you know, there are the kids with the dead eyes and I was a dead eyed kid. If you looked at me, if I looked at pictures of myself mm -hmm. um, and I read a lot and I see a lot because I think about these issues a lot mm -hmm. uh, about the ways that schools and I mean, Jesus Christ, you know, the way schools are funded in the United States is disgusting in and of itself, but mm -hmm. any occasional lucky efforts that schools will put forth to helping disadvantaged kids or kids who come from broken homes or abusive situations. And a lot of it focuses on, you know, trying to provide, you know, kind of traditional um, psychiatric or, or, you know, um, psychological help mm -hmm. or, you know, other kinds of things that, you sort of more normally associate with helping people who have, who have abuse in their lives. But I'll tell you that from my experience and the experience of my friends and a lot of people who I know who come from this background now, just providing an after school project or supporting, you know, the art projects or engineering projects or programming or whatever it is that those kids have, just showing them support for something, just being an adult and, legitimizing, giving them permission to do the thing that they're passionate about means more than anything else you can do mm -hmm. because it lets them have an anchor 
that they can connect themselves to that's that's real that they can think about when their mom's trying to throw shit at them or when their dad's beating them or whatever that's in the back of their head and it lets you survive Seamus, i really appreciate you sharing that part of your life i didn't know we'd end up there um but that's that's very I, I how do I put I don't know how, I'm I'm at a loss for words but it grounds a bigger conversation and I really appreciate that because we are here to talk about games but that allows us to look back and see what and why and how certain things took place and so I really appreciate you sharing that man thank you you're welcome and and you know it, it's the the most poignant comments that I get about Xbox and honestly like I you know I did uh. I've done a couple of interviews now because a bunch of the materials from uh, Jurassic World, which started out as a game that I was working on with Steven Spielberg, mm-hmm. um, came out. And I did an interview about it yesterday and talked to these people who, for whom Trespasser had actually meant a lot. And the ones that hit home for me most are the people who say, yeah, when I was a kid, I escaped into one of these things mm-hmm. and it helped me. And I, I start to actually tear up when people say that because it connects to me so perfectly. And, and I feel like at that point, it sounds so cheesy, but I feel like my life hasn't been a waste because if there are kids who could get out of that shit and, and who could be helped a little bit by some of this stuff, then it's worth it. It's worth all the bullshit. It's worth the, you know, the dudes at Microsoft, like, you know, trying to screw you over behind your back and smiling in your face. So all of that shit that's so painful, if you help mm-hmm. some kids, it's worth it. Yeah. And I, yes, <laughs> in my, in my profession, I know exactly what you mean. And there are days where I'm at a 12 hour day and I'm staying late to coach soccer because no one else will. And it's because that one or two, those one or two kids have no one to pick them up. If coach lore doesn't take them home, if I don't, no, if I'm not there for that and yeah and and, so, and, yeah. and and you go home and you'd think you'd be all exhausted and really bitter about your job but you're not you're walking on air right because you've helped mm-hmm. the kids yeah exactly that's the thing exactly. that's what it is well let's return to games but I do again thank you for sharing that that personal element that is a huge and appreciated anecdote that I'm going to use later on in other conversations um, Seamus let's go back to the original Xbox, the, the, that uh, device that at one point you had aluminum prototypes and you were soldering under a stage and whatnot. We're in a phase now where gamers can log into xCloud without even a box to play Xbox games, play games entirely online with whatever device has an internet connection. But in the very beginning of Xbox, you chose to put an Ethernet port on that system. And that really hadn't been done before. You'd had and a hard drive. Uh, the and Dreamcast. A hard drive. Yeah, and, and a hard drive. Exactly. <clears throat> those, are, those are both essential. So why'd you do it? For that reason, that that everybody who was making games at that time, and specifically making PC games, which is where I come came from. I didn't come from console games. And mm-hmm. Xbox, in many ways, was a very uh, bigoted thing for me because I was saying, literally, look, in PC games, we've invented 3D and we've invented physics and we've invented uh, open world gameplay and we've invented multiplayer now. And I'm going to enforce this on consoles because I know this is the future. 
-hmm. and consoles need to stop being Nintendo because really that's what they were. And there was PlayStation one, which was really just a 3d Nintendo Mm -hmm. Um, and the style of content. And I'm not saying that the content was bad. It's fucking brilliant games. I love them. And I love Nintendo. I'm not trying to shit on Nintendo. I'm trying to say is that I could see the future and we could all see the future as being, uh, as being more interactive and more social um, with the kinds of games that you could make uh, by being connected, which mm-hmm. by the way, didn't mean you can also make the old style of games and single player games, which still happens and are brilliant. Uh, but you had more options. And so it seemed ludicrous to talk about making a future games console that didn't have that. Furthermore, um, you know, the, the value of Microsoft introducing a games console really had to be the only story we could tell was it had to be something that ushered in the future by bringing hard technologies from the world of, 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 of serious sort of big boy pants compute mm-hmm. uh, into consoles. Um, and, you know, the, <laughs> the real fact was we needed Microsoft's bank account and backing in order to be able to, like, enter a market that has a Sony and a Nintendo and a Sega in it. Mm-hmm. So at that point, we didn't know Sega was going to drop out, right? Mm-hmm. Um but the excuse is that we could bring this technology forward into it. And, you know, there are there were memos where people were trying to some of the guys you listed earlier who now claim credit for, you know, Xbox being connected were waging secret political warfare against me to get the Ethernet and the hard drive taken out. Then later on, you know, we'll go in the press and talk about how they were visionary. That's just politics. That's fine. But it was clear because of PC gaming, because of Looking Glass, because of Trespasser, it was clear that those devices were not only good to have, but were absolutely essential to the future. And it was awkward at the time. Um, I produced or directed or wrote, I can't remember what, a whole video. And I flew to LA a bunch of times to get it done to try to explain what online gaming was to console gamers who didn't know what it was. Mm-hmm. And that seems insane now, right? And it was really it hard to do. It was hard to figure out how to describe what it was like to play online with somebody who was in a different place than you. And, you know, already we had, uh, we had Quake um, and, uh, uh, and several other, you know, sort of multiplayer shooter games, but also... People at that time argued that shooters were going to be impossible on console because to play a shooter, you had to be sitting up and holding a mouse with a keyboard, which, of course, we now know is not the case. But at that time, that was religious dogma, and that's what people were saying. Obviously, to us, people who were writing the games, we didn't believe that for a second. That's like it was a fan thing. But the fans matter a lot because it's the audience. And the fans do see things that developers can't. Right. The fans understand what the deal is in a way that you can't when you're developing games. But when you're developing games, you can see how new technologies can be folded into games. And it just seemed it seemed ludicrous to 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 not have a hard drive um, and 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 a network connection. Now, and I'm just fucking spouting on and on here. But the flip side of that was I spent months taking heat from people. That uh, that console games were going to be ruined because it was going to be all about, you know, updates and patches and shit. And that's why I had the hard drive so that there'd be buggy software and we could patch it because Mm -hmm. at that point 
consoles didn't have patches, which again, now today seems insane because the first thing that happens when you buy a new game is you sit around for half an hour while it fucking updates itself. But mm-hmm. <laughs> that was ludicrous back then. And we had to prove that we could make a machine that had these technologies in it that would behave like a 1999 console so that 1999 console consumers would consider buying it, right? It's hard to look back through that lens and remember how things were then, but that was that was the reality back then. Um, so, you know, hey, why are you putting a network on this? Nobody uses a network. What am I going to be doing my fucking spreadsheet on this? Mm-hmm. Okay, and that would be the kind of interview question that I would get. I'd have to talk about that. And, oh, it's going to be the blue screen of death console. And, like, it's going to be super slow. And what's it going to, it's going to run word for Windows? Like, and that was my fucking life. Mm-hmm. And but you yeah. had to compete with that. Does that <laughs> is that where, the, is that where the, the, the demo where you guys had to, like, fast boot the system to show that it could exist in 1999 and still have the power of a, of a computer in some ways? Oh, well, Windows was able to do that for a long time. Um Windows could boot from a disk image. So it's just, you know, it's not a complicated trick to understand. Um, you, you have um, some code that copies all of memory to the hard drive, right? And then you turn the computer off. And when you turn it on, it boots up, spins the hard drive up. And by this, I mean, you know, it takes a couple seconds. And then copies off the hard drive into RAM, puts the program... Uh, counter back where it was and you go. Mm-hmm. Um, and Windows had been able to do that for a long time, but it wasn't used. And the reason is a little bit subtle. It's that PCs had, you know, when, when you think, again, think about PCs back in the 90s, um, part of the value proposition about PCs is we could plug any all this different shit into them, right? Everybody's PC was different. Mm-hmm. Everybody had different video card, different sound cards. I have two sound cards. I have two sound cards and a trackball. Well, I have a mouse, but I use the other mouse controller and I have three keyboards and I have, you know, two monitors. And it was all different, right? A part of the hell of writing PC games was you had to deal with like everybody's different configuration. And that was part of the reason that PC games didn't run as close to the bleeding edge with the same level of quality that console games had at the time because you didn't have a specific target you could optimize for. Um, So what does this mean for QuickBoot? Well, it means that Every time the PC turns on, it has to go and figure out what the fuck is connected to it. Mm-hmm. And that takes a lot of time because, you know, you got to wait for things to time out. And so the Windows boot up is basically Windows waiting for every possible device that it could figure out would be in there to make to sure it really in. wasn't there before it would start. Okay. And I looked at the code and I was like, oh, shit, this is terrible. Windows made another big mistake, too, uh, when it was released. Um which is also kind of subtle to understand for today's modern audience, which is that um, back in the day before Windows, uh, when you're running in DOS, not on any computer, you'd put in uh, a spreadsheet program. And if the spreadsheet program crashed, you'd say, oh, the spreadsheet crashed. And you'd put in a word processing program like WordPerfect. And if it crashed, oh, fucking WordPerfect crashed, right? Mm-hmm. Then Microsoft is trying to sell you an operating system. Right. And Mac has come out and Macintosh is really stable. And so what what Windows does is, okay, you can use all your old programs, but now they're in folders and files. And so it took the other programs you used and like made them work with a GUI. And part of what Microsoft promised from a marketing standpoint was that it would make your system more stable. 
And what that meant was there were big patches of code inside of Windows that would look to see, oh, this is WordPerfect version 4.021 that has this memory leak and this other thing. We're going to go plug them. And it would go fix them. But then Microsoft inadvertently did the dumbest thing in the world, which is that they took responsibility for everybody's crash. Right? Because after Windows launched, if your computer crashed, what would you say? You'd say, oh, fucking Windows. Windows crashed again. Windows crashed, You know, Windows didn't crash. An app crashed. But Windows has now taken responsibility for it. You fucking idiot. Because people weren't thinking about apps in that stage. That's something that we would do now, but we... That's not something people were doing then. It was no, it was Windows and Windows crashed. And, you know, and so, you know, and, and, and it's even true today. I mean, you know, everybody blamed Windows. And there are good reasons to hate Windows. I'm not denying that. Um, but this wasn't one of them <laughs> back in the day. It was a marketing problem. So when you started Windows, it was doing all of this stuff behind the scenes to try to, like, make good on these promises. So mm-hmm. if you didn't do any of that, if you knew that the system was never going to change because it was a sealed box. And if you could load into RAM, then you could boot really fast. So yeah, we made a, we made a demo system and uh, Microsoft had one of the very earliest 3D printers, which was this amazing giant contraption the size of three refrigerators next to one another um, that had this like vat of poisonous carcinogenic fluid that was cauterized with a laser. And uh, we printed this box and painted it and made it look real pretty. And we'd hit the button, it would turn right on. And we took it in for this demo with Bill and everybody there and <laughs> booted up with, and, and it came right on and, 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 and came up with our DirectX box logo, which is still what mm-hmm. it was called. And we put in a Tomb Raider disc, PC Tomb Raider disc. The operating system recognized that it was Tomb Raider and immediately booted up Tomb Raider like in a console-like speed. And we thought we had the greatest demo ever. And it was really fucking cool, right? Mm-hmm. Well, what happened was Bill got really angry. <laughs> I was like, oh, shit. Bill Gates is getting really angry. And he starts yelling at the Windows guys because he really, really wanted Windows to have instant boot. And that's why he wanted that feature. He was like, why the fuck haven't you guys put this in Windows? Why doesn't Windows instantly boot? Why don't we have the user hold down a key if they've added something new? You could put it in the fucking boot screen. And so that meeting was definitely weirder than I thought it would be. And that is a much longer answer to that question than you ever anticipated. But now you know a lot about the history of Windows. And aren't you glad? I am glad. It sounds like one of those moments where the guy in charge is mad, but not at you. And so you're like, what do I do with my hands? Yeah. It's like, oh, look, the floor is really interesting. Oh, my God, this carpet weave. Look at that. I have to look more at that. <laughs> Did they do new designs? That's brilliant. Look at that. Exactly. Look at that. This plaster should really be cleaned here in the boardroom. Yeah, this kind of thing. <laughs> exactly right. I am curious, before we move on from the, the box itself, the the people that were anti, anti-hard anti drive or anti-Ethernet port, uh, was it was it a cost thing or a lack of understanding or both? Um, both. And it was interesting because you had a bunch of guys. So there's this big sort of plug of middle management at Microsoft. A lot of them were guys who had just worked there a long time and managed not to be fired. And they had been, they become very wealthy with stock options. And when you become very wealthy and you've had a job for a long time, you think you're a fucking genius, right? You, you, you start to think that you're responsible for the success of the company. 
Okay. And, mm-hmm. and, and look, I, I don't want to take anything away from those guys, but that's, it was kind of funny to me. Right. And, uh, there were a lot of them, right. Microsoft made a lot of people very wealthy. Uh, and a lot of them really, what they did was not be fired for 10 years and let their, their shares become worth a lot. Okay. And so when there was a game console project, everybody wanted to be on the game console project. Because it's cool, right? And like you're at Microsoft, there's big antitrust lawsuits. Microsoft has stopped being a cool company. Um, in the early 90s, if you worked for Microsoft in Seattle, people would like give you the best seat at the restaurant. Everybody thought it was really cool. They were really proud of it. And then, you know, Microsoft started to become a dirty word. And suddenly there was this project that was exciting and new. And so everybody wanted to kind of be a part of it. So suddenly everyone, much like on social media, everybody was a newly minted console expert, gotcha. which was super maddening. And of course, most of them had never owned or played a game console before. Okay. There were executives on the team who you mentioned who had never owned or played a game console and had one delivered to their office so they could unbox it and try it the first time. And then the next day would come to a meeting and start telling me what should be in a console. No joke. And so that was, that was how it was. And those people now, you know, Talk about how great, how much vision they had for the project and all that. That's okay. It's okay. That's how people are. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm probably 80% full of shit on this anyway. So you should discount 80% of what I say here. Just, I'm telling you just as a warning. Just toss it um, out. Just toss it but, out. But <laughs> sure, sure. Keep the funny parts. Um, the rest of the stuff is bullshit. So basically, uh, the hard drive and the ethernet were rejected for two reasons. Both of them were really bad. One was people who'd never made a console, played a console or shipped a console or any consumer electronics deciding it was too expensive based on nothing uh, because it was a hard drive. And because, and the second one was other consoles don't have hard drives. Why would we have a hard drive? Because they were also not gamers or game developers. (laughs) <laughs> they didn't understand where design was going. Gotcha. So here are these guys, and they're very senior, and I'm just a little Seamus. I'm the new guy. Okay, my my badge is still shiny as fuck. Mm-hmm. I still don't know how to get to like the the you know building thirty one. You know, I'm this brand new fucking idiot. Don't know anybody. Gotcha. No connections. These guys walk into the room, they all know each other already. They have an old rapport. They've like shipped some product that made 40 billion fucking dollars for the company. They're super senior. And they're looking at me and saying, well, no, the console has a, has a hard drive. So we're not going to have a hard drive. It's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And I'd be, you know, going through my mind, I'd be like Wolfgang Pauli's great quote, you know, like you're, you're not even wrong. Like, like that's so stupid that it's not even good enough to be wrong. What you're saying right now. Gotcha. And so you have to work backwards how to be the newest guy at the company and convince these people that you're right. And, and the way to do it is to make them think it's their idea. So it's the Jedi mind trick. You, you help them to feel like it's their thing. And so you relate it to, you know, what they've done in the past. Oh, you worked on internet Explorer. So it, you know, it'll be like this and this and this, or you were, you know, you worked on office. It'll, you know, it'll be like this and this. You, you have to contend with all these things, and now twenty years later, you're seeing Xbox purchase Bethesda for seven billion, Activision for seventy billion. Uh, compare that to the monies that you had to fight for twenty plus years ago. Uh, what goes through your mind when you see these deals now? 
Well, there was a there was a time I was walking with Kevin Backus in the cafeteria in on the Red West campus, which looks like some kind of high end ski lodge. Mm-hmm. We're holding our trays and we're looking around for somewhere to sit down. And uh, Steve Ballmer comes up behind us. We don't notice him. Puts his head in between our two heads and goes, "You're going to lose all our money." That is, that is a Steve Ballmer impression, too. And <laughs> you know, almost dropped my tray. And he meant it. And so I always think about that. And I have a little smile. Man, what a what a wild thing, you know, because Ballmer was that energetic type. He was the one dancing awkwardly on stage, just going for it. Uh, and then he had to approve multiple projects later on, at least based on what I remember. Uh I feel like it was Steve Ballmer that had to help with the Red Ring of Death and say and sign off on it and say yes, here spend X yeah, amount and, of dollars. And, 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 and yeah, I mean, look, that's like that's boy, that's a hundred percent Peter Moore. What a, what a good man. I mean, Peter Moore, like you want to know who loves who loves gamers? It's Peter Moore. Um, so. and um, yeah, you know, Steve, this was all from completely outside of Steve's life experience, wheelhouse, anything he took seriously at all. And the people who made games and the way they were made were totally outside of the, the, the discipline and the structure and the mindset that had made Steve successful and the teams that he had seen been successful. And I credit him, I credit Steve Ballmer with a lot for adjusting his intuition to feel okay with spending billions of dollars on a game console because it was not a thing that was in his comfort zone he had to grow for that and it's neat it's neat at least for me on the outside looking in hearing you say these things hearing some of the different uh, interviews that you've given and others have given that were in and around those projects it's neat to see now the the leadership team at xbox sitting down next to satya nadella they're sitting at the table with them in big Microsoft board, hoity-toity, whatever meetings. But Xbox is such a now big pillar for Microsoft overall. It just seems so different than uh, the Rebel Alliance kind of battling for gamers way back when to, from this yeah. direct Xbox. You know, it just seems it's neat. It's surreal for me on the outside looking in. It is. I, you know, several years ago uh, at E3, there was a panel for IGN with uh, me and <clears throat> Moore and Phil Spencer and Ryan McCaffrey. Yeah. 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 And, Episode 201. And, yeah. Yeah. And <laughs> I, I've uh, watched um, it and, several times, but I loved it. I'm sorry. I'm cutting you off only no, to fanboy okay. for a moment because I loved that panel. That meant so much to me as a gamer but, to see that. But it was, uh, you know, that, that, okay. One a surreal moment. That's a surreal moment. I'm looking at these two super brilliant executives who, um, have so many skills and talents I don't have who are so accomplished and polished. Um, and I realized like, wow, I made your jobs. It's so fucked up. <laughs> yeah. That's wild. <laughs> yeah. That's weird. I, I, I hadn't thought about it in that perspective. Was it, uh, how did you and like, I was thinking, and, and you could probably like find outtakes of me staring into space. Cause that's what I was thinking. Because you created that which now gives them careers, you know? That's neat. That's cool. Do you still talk to those guys, Phil and, and Peter? 
Uh, yes, I do, actually. Uh, Peter, Peter's a big deal in, in English football now. Mm-hmm. Um, having, you know, been a, had a very successful tenure with Liverpool FC. Um, and, uh, and Phil, you know, I couldn't be a bigger fan. You know, Phil helped to the relaunch of the Duke controller. Because, you know what, Phil's heart's in the right fucking place. Phil, Phil's a gamer. And people give Phil so much shit. I, I promise you. If any of these people who give Phil shit online had spent three minutes with him talking about games, mm-hmm. they would be his best friend. He's 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 a, he's for real, man, and he goes in there and takes a ton of shit off of Microsoft and the board and and everybody in order to do the right thing for Xbox. And you should really people should appreciate that more. He's a good dude. He seems like a good dude. It's it's I, I've had the chance to meet him once at an E3 in a meet and greet sense, right? Like he doesn't know who I am or this podcast or whatnot. But it was it was a moment where I felt like I mattered to him in that moment where he shook my hand, looked in the eyes. And that's not something I think we expect from executives. And uh, could you, you you he's been there since like the 80s. But like, did you ever interact with him prior to his now current roles? He claims that we did, but I don't remember him. Because I was too important <laughs> as an executive and I blew him off and didn't remember him. <laughs> That's cool, though, man. And I'm glad to hear that you guys have a, a good standing relationship. What do you think about uh, some of the choices that they've been making as a company of late? I mean, Game Pass certainly seems to be its own uh, doing well, at least from the outside looking in. They've done a lot of choices with X Cloud. What are your thoughts on where they're going right now? Uh, they're navigating a big business in games as the meaning of compute changes and that's super challenging. And it's like, how do we, it's kind of like the X, it's kind of like the hard drive ethernet connection battle. Right. Mm -hmm. But the super big version of that, because there are questions that are important right now about how, how much local compute there is going to be. Um, about how graphics are going to work in the future, about how the business of entertainment is going to change. And these aren't abstract thoughts anymore. Things are moving. And what Xbox or PlayStation and Nintendo means, Nintendo is the easiest case, but what PlayStation and Xbox mean as businesses built on, you know, shipping advanced hardware that runs bespoke games, uh, is really in question. It's difficult. It's difficult to see what the path forward is. So, what you're seeing is, and from Sony as well, although a little bit more conservatively with Sony, uh, you're seeing steps being made to make, to get space and to get flexibility to deal with the changes that are coming. Whether that changes are coming. Well, I mean, you know, are we going to have local compute anymore? Meaning, are you going to have a device or are you going to have merely a player for services that are computed elsewhere mm-hmm. from data, which is stored elsewhere? And we still we already do a lot of that. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, is that the way of things? And, and I don't just mean with games. I mean, in general, because games have always followed the general trend in compute. And, and don't get me wrong. I genuinely believe, and I will always believe, that games are the only legitimate use for a computer. That's just true. But what it means is that wherever computers go, games will follow the computers there, right? 
when when televisions went to high definition, games followed suit and helped to drive that, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Like internet, all this stuff. So if the computing industry decides that they are going in some direction for some reason, and part of that reason is going to be games because mm-hmm. it's such a big, important influencer now, mm-hmm. then the nature of the business of games is going to have to follow suit. And so you have to make sure your business isn't dependent upon anything that could vanish. That doesn't mean it's going to vanish. It doesn't mean that consoles are going to be over. But if mm-hmm. they are, you got to be ready for that. Yeah? And that's um, what xCloud would would sit theoretically do if this comes to pass? Yeah. And if it doesn't come to pass, the next thought will be something else. Right. Mm -hmm. So I think that's what's going on. Interesting. Do you, uh, armchair analyst mode, Seamus, do you ever feel like you want to offer advice to any of these companies, Xbox or otherwise for, (laughs) no, 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 (laughs) never again. Never again. It's too stressful. Is it? Because well, after no, Xbox, you went and well, you were an agent, right? Yeah, but that was that was an entirely new thing, man. I got to learn about, you know, I went to go work for Hollywood's biggest, most prestigious agency, and I got to learn how everything worked. All finance, all deals, intellectual property, across all media, music, everything. You know, we did Guitar Hero and funded Guitar Hero and all the mechanical licensing for that and took Infinity Ward out and made Respawn with it. Like that was fascinating stuff. I learned so much. That was all new. And the thing that turns me on, the place I like to be is, you know, at at that place where nobody knows yet because I'm comfortable mm-hmm. there. I'm okay not knowing. A lot of people get terrified by that and I get excited by it. And, you know, when you, you know, I am I am definitely the guy who's, you know, in the scouting platoon sneaking into enemy territory trying to blow up the bridge. Mm-hmm. Um, I am not a guy interested in being the captain of the aircraft carrier. Gotcha. Gotcha. Now I, ha- well, I, I have, been, I have been the captain of the aircraft carrier and I can simulate doing a good job at that, but it's not where my passion lies. If I'm given a choice. Do you want to be out breaking, breaking mold, the mold, doing something fresh, something new, exploring new territory. That's right. And, 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 and making it really work. I mean, that's the other thing. And I think that comes from physics is that, you know, you don't kind of start something and see if it works and then take off. No, you see it through, you make it a product, you ship it, you make sure it's stable, you make sure it's good. And if you don't want to lead it anymore, then you find a good leader and you put them in charge. That's what you do. Um, so you can't be irresponsible about it, but, you know, be honest about what turns you on and what turns me on is learning stuff, curiosity, exploration. Those things are the best. Do you still get to do that? I, I actually, I'll confess, I don't know what it is you do professionally, if anything, at this point. Are, are you retired? Are you still working professionally uh, doing that? Are you on the edge somewhere? Um, I am <clears throat> way out on the edge somewhere. Um, I am the CEO of a, of a stealth mode deep tech startup, which with uh, shit, Seamus. <laughs> a very large number of employees. We just closed our C our, our C round of funding for an awful lot of money, and you'll hear about it. Well, that's cool. Not the answer I was expecting. Hmm. Whew. Well, that's no, crazy. I'm, ba- I'm, baking, I, I'm baking bread in retirement. That's what I kind of really want people to think. Ah, I'm just making bagels. 
<laughs> you could have told me that. I've been like, yeah, I follow him on Twitter. Yeah, that's why I agree. Yep, yep, yep. Making bagels. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sometimes yeah. I you do know you can grow. <laughs> he taught me how to grow yeast. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yes. that's right. That's, that's wild. Sometimes, sometimes well, he he makes posts about non-renormalizable relativistic quantum field theory. But yeah, James, more than once in trying to get you on this show, I have Googled shit that you have said so that I can learn. Because <laughs> I have a very passive interest, but I, I I was not a good student in high school and I didn't get the math I needed. But I enjoy physics and learning about it uh, in a very casual sense. And, you know, like I have a favorite scientist and stuff like that. And, and you know, like that's it's neat to see some of this stuff because it's so far beyond me. And yet you can you can speak so far beyond me and yet when i look around my room which you can't see at the moment but there are tons of master chief statues and there's xbox (laughs) green everywhere and there's 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 an entire element of my life that you've influenced and uh quite seriously gaming has saved my life and allowed me to be a teacher in the classroom and i use that i use gaming in my classroom to teach and you're the guy that founded my most favorite of the of the first parties and you did that, and now you're talking about stuff that I have to Google to figure it out. And bread. Well, there's and the bread. bread. The, the bread. Yeah, it's bread, you know. Um, <clears throat> well, you know, study physics, kids. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> that's all I have to say. Um, <laughs> that's, that's cool. So I, as we close out, because I don't want to take too much more of your time, you clearly love games. You're a fan of games. You're a gamer yourself. You've talked about other people being that you've worked with not being gamers and being gamers. You know, Phil, and then and then some of the other names we said. Um, do you still have time to play? Are you playing anything exciting? Is there stuff that you enjoy doing recreationally, or are you just watching from afar at the moment? Um, no, man. I, I games are games will always be a central part of my life. Um, and you know there. <clears throat> Uh, I mean, I'll, I'll embarrass myself. I mean, one of the, one of the things that I do a lot still is 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 Skyrim and mods. You know, I'm like level four thousand in Skyrim, um, nice. and I, I play a bunch of you know a bunch of new stuff, um, and also a lot of you know uh, a lot of vintage games. And I like, you know, I, I really like indie games and I play a lot of indie games because that spirit is the spirit that I remember from the 90s. And so that's re- I feel at home there. And, and I like places where I can feel that purity most strongly, just pure gameplay. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess it's a little bit like, like listening to jazz and wanting to just hear, you know, John Coltrane just play with McCoy Tyner and nobody else just simple, mm-hmm. just so clean. Sure. So, you know, like, um, there's a handheld called an Arju boy, which is an Arduino with a black and white display. And there are mm-hmm. games on that system that are so fucking brilliant because it has no capabilities. So it's just pure craftsmanship. I love that. I'm, I Googled it. That's crazy. That's your jam right now. Yeah. Well, the yeah. Arjuboy. At the moment, I'm playing an adventure game on Arju Boy, which is like, which reminds me so much of the original Zelda in that the design of the game, which is super deep and has a cool story and is, I'm completely enthralled by this thing. And I, and I think of it like a real place. Okay. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? 
Yeah, I know exactly um, what you mean. But its design is completely limited by the triviality of that hardware. I mean, it's like really limited. And that ability to make a real place that has emotional value that you can go to as an adult human being and have a meaningful experience in, that's what games is about. That's it right there, right? That's the art. That's the craft. It's not about how many polygons you push or how many high-end artists you have and all that stuff. And that shit's awesome, by the way. I mean, like, I am the number one Naughty Dog fan. But where it really comes from is the ability to take nothing and build a world out of it. And that's what I love. That is the perfect ending point. Uh, and I think that's the, a wonderful point that I want to close out on. Seamus Blackley, physicist, mathematician, the father of Xbox. I'm eternally grateful for your time today, and uh, I hope you enjoyed yourself. It was awesome talking to you, Luke. Take care, man.